this guy's rocking out on the cherry red electric guitar, sitting down with his foot up, propped up on the floor monitor, rocking back and forth. And it's my advisor, my monk advisor. He's, the bearded monk. Yeah, the bearded monk. Some of you will remember last year in the Renovare Book Club, we read through Henry Nouwen's book, Life of the Beloved. It was a good book, and I found it helpful. But the last section really messed with me. He presented this idea that our death is potentially a gift we can give to others. That our death is maybe even the greatest gift we can give. Now, honestly, this confused me, but it stuck with me. I'm not quite sure, but I think it has something to do with what we leave. The memories and lessons, the way we loved. Now, throughout the year, I'm starting to understand some of what he was trying to say. When I think of those I've loved who've passed, there's a sweetness, an inspiration, oh, a a completedness to their lives. And I find myself grateful having known them. I don't know if I agree with Nowen, but it's worth listening to. A few months back during our staff meeting at Renovare, Brian Morricon shared with the group that he'd just learned of the passing of his friend, Scott Baker. Scott had been Brian's mentor as a worship leader. He taught him so much and deeply influenced the way Brian approaches music. Now, Brian was clearly shaken up by the shock of his friend's unexpected departure. In his cracking voice, I saw a tenderness, a sweetness, and a gratitude. I immediately thought of Nowen and this idea that maybe there's a gift for Brian in this tragic situation. That's the prayer I pressed in on, that maybe, maybe in his loss, a gift might emerge. I should note that throughout the podcast, You'll hear Scott's music. Even the instrumental pieces we use during the transitions are songs that were discovered on Scott's computer and sent out by his wife to a few friends after his passing. My name is Nathan Foster, and welcome to the Renovare Podcast. Brian, tell me about your friend Scott. So I met Scott in 2000 as my advisor at Liberty University. I walk into his office and he has all of these philosophy books on his shelf. And he was a very serious guy, had a pretty good beard going on and (laughs) always talked in a voice kind of like this. And I told Scott, so I'm... 19, and I tell him, I want to start a recording studio. Okay. And he says, okay, what kind of mics are you going to get? <laughs> <laughs> because he he knew some stuff about recording, and he wanted to see if I was 
serious, serious about it. If yeah. I was just goofing around. Well, he told me he played music and that he led worship at a church. And immediately the picture that came to mind was a monk in a robe playing <laughs> a classical guitar at the front <laughs> of a cathedral mm. chanting psalms. I like it. <laughs> it just seemed to fit his personality and his office, what I knew about him at that time. And so fast forward a couple months, and my wife and I are looking to make a, a fresh start at a church together. And we walk into this church that meets in an old Rite Aid <laughs> building. I'm just trying to set the picture here. You, you've got the old linoleum floors where you can see the stains from where the aisles previously existed uh-huh. and the fluorescent lights. People are wearing shorts. This is <laughs> totally foreign to us from where we had grown up. And we were taken by the music. And uh, I look up on stage and this this guy's rocking out on the cherry red electric guitar, sitting down with his foot up, propped up on the floor monitor, rocking back and forth. And it's my advisor, my monk advisor. The bearded monk. Yeah, the bearded monk. I, I thought, this is not what I expected. And I am delighted. And so that was my two introductions to Scott, first in his, his office as the monk advisor and then as the the rocking uh the right, rocking monk. Right. right, 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 right. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think John Michael Talbot had actually made an album called Monk Rock. And that's that's a good picture of Scott. So it turns out, you know, Scott had written the songs that we were singing, which is why I'd never heard him before. And his music and him leading is what, what kept us around at that church until the message of the, the kingdom really sunk into our heart because the pastor had just read The Divine Conspiracy right before we started coming and was uh, preaching on the kingdom of God. And this, the concepts were so foreign to us that we, we had no idea what, what he was talking about. But if it weren't for Scott's music, we never would have stuck around long enough to to hear that and uh, and he was Scott was doing things like liturgical responsive prayers uh, which mm-hmm. was all the, the tradition we grew up didn't do any of that stuff so he was drawing on the book of common prayer even though this was an evangelical free church so it wasn't a it wasn't a church that would normally do the liturgical thing he brought mm-hmm. that in to the service and introduced us to all those elements and um with his cherry red guitar. Yeah, with his cherry red <laughs> Stratocaster and his inimitable style and just low-key, just that he sat down <laughs> leading this contemporary music was a good picture of him. He came to be a mentor, a friend? Yeah, yeah. How'd that happen? So... um I had recorded some music at that time, some very bad music that I gave to him, and he saw something good in it that uh, 
it's hard for me to even see <laughs> now looking <laughs> back. But um, he invited me to come and play on the worship team. And leading worship is something I had done a little bit in high school, leading musical worship, I should say. And I had pretty much decided that's not something I was going to do uh, because I had a particular idea in my mind of what you had to look like to be a contemporary worship leader, and it didn't feel like a fit for me. And so when Scott invited me on the team and playing alongside him and watching the way that he did things was unlike anybody else I had seen, just that he was able to fully embrace who he was and to bring his uh, his low-key, and he had a great sense of humor too, but it, it was, he was not a charismatic personality. Mm-hmm. He was not a rah-rah, pump-you-up kind of person. Mm-hmm. And the name of his record label was Irreverent, E-A-R, Reverent. <laughs> <laughs> and... That's a great way to think about Scott because there's you've got that little sense of humor in there, but that sense of reverence and mm. awe that he always wanted to give to the Lord. And when you worshipped with him, you sensed that he was aware of the uh, greatness of God. There wasn't any presumption, mm. and uh, there was there was honesty and and reverence. And I think what made Scott such a great worship leader and writer of songs is that he, one, kind of had a difficult personal stuff that was difficult, that was pressing in his life in that time. And that furnace of stuff in anybody's life is often a good uh, backdrop for authentic worship. And the other is that he didn't like contemporary worship music. Mm -hmm. He didn't listen to any of it. He didn't in fact, he introduced me to people like well, Bob Dylan. I'd heard of, of course, but had never really listened to much, you know. So he said, listen to this, you know, Time Out of Mind, Bob's album that was produced by a guy named Daniel Lanois, who is another one of Scott's favorites. That was the stuff Scott was listening to. And if he was listening to any Christian music, it was probably John Michael Talbot or choral chants or something. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. He brought that flavor of things to what he did. And, and I think he only started writing wor- worship songs for a contemporary group just because he saw the other stuff that was out there and thought, like, I think I can do this, and I think I can make something that our congregation at least can sing. And, and, um, and he did, and, and it was uh, really good. The church still sings it 20 years later, and they're, they're still singing those songs that he wrote when we, when we were there, there 20 years ago. We were saved He carried us away He has come In your time with him, what did he teach you about leading musical worship? You don't have to pretend that you can show up, you be prepared, but you don't have to try and generate something mm-hmm. that's not there. You can just 
be who you are in leading worship. You don't have to try and be somebody else. Is there a pull for that in leading worship to, to not be authentic? I mean, not necessarily imposed on others, but, you know, internally. Modern musical worship is a strange animal. <laughs> it's, yeah. And I need to do more research to understand this more fully, but any person who's older than 30 years old can look around and has been in church and say, it, things have changed significantly, not necessarily for the worse uh, in some areas, but it's just a, a radical shift in how we worship, where the, f- where the focus is on the emphasis on uh, performance and per- personality. I, I don't think that's been an intentional thing. It's just drifted that way. Uh, my sense that in generations past, it mattered much, much less who was actually doing the leading of the musical worship. There's an organist and a and you whatever. You saw the organist, right? You Hidden. don't know who's doing it. You get It's just a backdrop for people to sing together. Mm-hmm. So it was truly this congregational thing, right? So music now sounds better than it ever has, but people are singing less than they ever have before together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there is the temptation... And part of it's just the general temptations of youth, and most of the people who are coming into worship leader positions today are younger, is ego stuff gets in the way, insecurities, and the um, where you, f- you feel like the pressure's on you to create this moment with God. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I have felt that at times, and I know a lot of other modern worship leaders feel that as well. Sure. So was this then a turning point where you had said, leading worship's not for me because I don't look the part, fit the part? Did he kind of open a door where kind of, no, Brian, just come be yourself, come worship? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it. That's something I would see later. And okay. he... He invited me to lead, and I got to do that on occasion while he was gone for a Sunday. Then I would fill in, that kind of thing. It still wasn't something I really desired to do until he had to step away from the the position. And uh, then the pastor asked me, do you want to lead worship? And I said, do you have anybody else? And he said, (laughs) not really. And I said, I'll pray about it. And I did, and since the Lord saying, I'd like for you to do this. Mm-hmm. So I can look back now and see, yeah, there, I was able to do that and step into it more fully later because of what I saw in Scott, but it wasn't an immediate thing. As most good lessons are, we don't right. know we're learning them. That's right. Come let us return to What, what would, if I were to have been able to ask Scott about his, you know, philosophy or what's going on when he was leading worship, what do you think he might have said? What I'm trying to find is we had an old irreverent 
website. It's not up anymore. But thanks to the Internet Archive. You found it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, so this is Scott's record label and publishing company, Irreverent, E-A-R, Reverent. He had written up a, a little about page on that, and here is some of that. He said, My career took me into teaching, but I, I came by my musical aspirations naturally, and I've been following through on them best as I can ever since. One of my earliest memories is sitting on the floor in our living room before a small china cabinet the bottom of which contained my father's small but growing collection of LPs. From a sensory standpoint, those cardboard and vinyl objects played as influential a role in my personal formation as the Lutheran catechism and liturgy in which I was thoroughly soaked by the age of 12. It wasn't long before Dad convinced Pastor Garth to let us take drums and bass into the sanctuary and play a couple of spiritual numbers for the congregation. This was the same bass guitar on which all of us had taken a turn playing the ubiquitous opening line from Smoke on the Water. (laughs) Down in the church basement, during a lull in youth group, you could play it all on the lowest string. Looking back, I think we may have been the original praise band. Most of the good Missouri Synod Lutherans accepted the move, I guess, but my dad told me one of his choir companions apparently had a word for any attempt at permeating the line between secular and sacred inside the church building, schmaltzy. (laughs) For some reason, many of us officially charged with crossing that line over the years, i.e. contemporary worship leaders, seem to have taken this characteristic as a mission statement. (laughs) Schmaltzy of relating to are marked by excessive or maudlin sentimentality. Getting at it from the direction of the thesaurus, hokey, kitschy, maudlin, mawkish, schmaltzy, pathetic, Sentimental, slushy, soppy, soupy, mushy, drippy. The overcompensating cure for schmaltz, of course, is coolness, a quality as elusive to the touch as a blob of mercury. (laughs) I didn't try to achieve coolness in church until after I had tried it at sundry times in diverse manners outside the church. By the time I returned in the late 1980s, those of us in newly acquired musical leadership positions satisfied our urge to speak the language of Christian worship in our own musical vernacular while justifying the project as follows. We were bringing appeal to the dusty act of going to church for those disaffected members of, quote-unquote, the younger generation. Any coolness we eventually appropriated derived from the sonic dins of FM, LP, Dolby Cassette, and CD as we tried to hit two cultural birds with one musical stone. But sooner or later, members of the past few generations found out that the kingdom of coolness is a hobo train car paneled inside with mirrors. When you, catch, when you catch a glimpse of your own reflection, you either have to hold your sides laughing, turn into Narcissus, or look elsewhere for artistic meaning and purpose. So good, Scott. It's <laughs> really good. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, I hope to do more than strum passionately along at the front of the room. Like all presumptuous owners of a six-string, possessing mastery of the shift from a major chord to a suspended chord and back again, I figured I could write contemporary congregational music just as well as the next guy. So between 1993 and 2004, under the wing and embrace of Grace Evangelical Free Church, I trotted out a s- string of freshly penned praise songs. <laughs> yes, praise songs in quotes. Uh, and invited, read, made, the casually dressed attendees to look at the words projected on the wall and then try to sing along. 
My first installment emerged from a kitchen writing session where I opened the Old Testament during Advent and wrote a song called With Us in Jesus, right out of Isaiah 9. This habit of keeping the songs grounded in the lyrical language of Scripture and the rhythms of the lectionary calendar, using multiple texts to comment back and forth on each other, became a songwriting principle. The name Irreverent was a cheeky pun meant to declare opposite refusals and complementary demands. Mm. Church songs need not be organ classical, nor must they be happy, clappy kitsch. At the same time, they should merge current musical strains with timeless pre-modern truth and the liturgical posture of the ageless church. The music we envision would be naturally tied to the folk rock roots of our existing abilities and proclivities, but would also strive to transcend that contemporary delivery system by seeking sufficient depth of content and liturgical purpose. We should publish this on the website too. Songs crawled and jumped out of the sound holes of an Ibanez, an ovation or a Takamini droning confessions and moody psalms and celebratory hand clappers. When the song had the right musical feel, that's the ear side of irreverent, and the appropriate liturgical function and language, that's the reverent side, it would march right up to the overhead projector and have a go. (laughs) Nothing could really stop it from the human side. That is, sometimes, unfortunately, no one has the heart to tell a worship leader no. Nevertheless, excusing the boldness, quite often there seemed to be a big yes from the divine side. We sought to hollow the everyday while wrenching the familiar out of its given shape and remolding it for holier use. Every once in a while, it seemed to work. To me, Raise a Song, that's one of his songs, said it best, borrowing from Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians 14, I will sing with my mind and my heart and my soul. last paragraph to put all of this on a slightly more elevated plane every christian and each historical generation and cultural setting has to find their place in the liturgy the way things are done by the people of god in time and across it those of us writing and singing and recording under the irreverent label were finding a way to be responsibly creative during transcendent moments that transpire in sacred space such as, say, the tiled storefront of the rented strip mall unit. May God bless those adults who let us kids play around with the church music. (laughs) In the spirit of gratitude, I'll end by calling your attention to Harold Best, that's the author, Unceasing Worship. In it, Best provides an update on a statement attributed to G.K. Chesterton, who said something like, anything worth doing is worth doing badly. (laughs) Best improves this by... Focusing on improvement itself. Anything worth doing is worth doing badly, but not for long. (laughs) I know that I'm not the only songwriter, music leader out there who finds himself worrying about one thing especially. What warrant do I and others like me have for adding to the sonic glut that we call music, especially if we're non-professionals? None at all. It is a privilege to be taken both seriously and lightly. If you elect to include any of these selections in your church's gatherings, may you find a way to make them more irreverent than when they started out. Let's leave this place better than we found it. Mm. Ah, that is so good. <laughs> that just makes that makes me miss him and regret that we didn't do more together. I just get a flood of 
feelings from that, reading that. <clears throat> I haven't read that in 10 years. Um, can, can we post that on the web yeah, for people? Yeah, we can. We can and we should. Yeah. God is our One is an incredible writer, but that's just deep in, in meaning. When you look now, these these years after having left Virginia and you remain friends uh, and then his passing, what are a couple of things that you take from his life and legacy when you pick up a guitar? There's a great humility to Scott in that he knew that modern worship music was in many respects inferior to previous worship music, inferior musically especially. He was aware of that, but didn't let that stop him from still participating in in writing mm-hmm. songs that, that people could sing. And he would go on later and maybe at the end of the podcast, we can play a couple clips from both that season of his life and then later on when he wrote a collection of songs from the church calendar that is meant for a, a choir and orchestra. Mm, that would be great. That season, we were in this contemporary church setting at an evangelical free church. He would end up later at an Anglican church. A What was the name of it? It was like Anglo. Catholic or something? I didn't even know there was such a thing. Hmm. You know, it's kind of like as high up as you can get on the Protestant side without becoming Catholic, (laughs) you know? Fully fully committed. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, And that's just, that was the perfect fit for Scott. He knew who he was, and he was comfortable in his own skin and became even more comfortable as, as he got older. He would work on these projects, this liturgical calendar project. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had mentioned it and stuff, right? But he would just work on that for years. He would go in to his little room and work on this thing and put it together. And then one day I just get an email and it's this finished project <laughs> of all, all these songs that are orchestrated and have all the parts and everything and barely said a peep of it about it to anyone along the way just faithfully doing his little thing in secret to the Lord again like a monk and not not having to have a lot of notoriety or try and be somebody that he wasn't and that's a huge inspiration for me you trying to carry that yeah 
couple times when we've been doing work together, before you start, I ask how I can pray for you while you're playing. And, and you often say something to this effect of to be self-forgetful and to worship yourself. It, one, did I get that right? And is that something that you saw in Scott? Yeah, that's right. For me to worship. Hopefully not to worship myself. <laughs> oh, that what um, <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're trying to avoid, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Especially as, as time went on, I think he, he became better and better at, at that, of forgetting about himself and using his his gifts in service of others and and um, and he himself mm-hmm. worshiping as as he led and, and to that last point that's that is something that it took me several more years to learn so after I took over for Scott, I did that for about two years mm-hmm. and at the end of it, I was fairly burned out, not because of anything the church had done, but simply because of my own heart posture towards the position. It had largely become a logistical affair mm-hmm. of picking the right songs and organizing the singers and the musicians. And the way I posed it to myself is that I'm not here to worship God. I'm here to serve others so that they can worship God, mm-hmm. which seems so noble, right? <laughs> Except the biggest disservice that a worship leader can do for the congregation uh, is to not themselves be worshiping mm-hmm. first. My friend Caleb just wrote this little book called Lead Worshipper. He's trying to reframe the title of worship leader. Oh, I'm, to, I'm first to I'm lead, lead, lead worshiper. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, yeah, I realized that that's the that's the absolute best thing that a worship leader can do is to worship first. And you have, of course, you have awareness. You're not just not not just you and God, and you're having this moment in the congregations like, uh, what's going on? Um, there's there's an ambient awareness of what's going on in, in the room, and if the song is singable and all the that kind of stuff but to be, to first be leading the way in worship it helps the congregation to worship and this is this is one area where i think that aspect of the the new form of worship where you've got this you know main person or people up front that has the temptation to become a performance. I think this is the flip side of it on the positive Mm. is because some people will say like, put the musicians in the back of the room. I used to think this like, don't, nobody needs to see the musicians, right? Mm -hmm. Like, just like the organist, you don't know who it is, hide them. And I think there's some value in, in that. However, if the worship leader is, himself or herself worshiping the Lord. Lead worshiper. Yes, if the lead worshiper is doing that, the it's like, Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. Worship with me as I worship Christ. Yeah. And there's something in about watching somebody 
truly worship. It's not like you're watching them the whole time. Mm-hmm. But just hearing that voice and seeing somebody's body posture of where you know that that person is focused on the goodness and the wonder of the Trinity and and truly worshiping that you want to do that too. And the story is told of David stripping off all of his clothes and dancing before the Lord, right? We all know that story. <laughs> Somebody who actually knows Jewish history better than this is, can write us an email and correct me. But here's, here's what I've heard. That in that day, armies, when they conquered another army, when one nation would conquer another, they would take that conquered king and strip him down mm. to humiliate him and put him out in front of the army who had done the conquering as this way to say, like, we've, we've yeah. you know, conquered. And David stripped himself down voluntarily and put himself out on display in front of the Ark of the Covenant, mm. in front of the Lord, to say, I'm a conquered king, conquered by, by the Lord, and I become even more undignified than this and stripped down and dancing there before the Lord as a conquered king and worshiping by example. As I walked by the sea He began to proclaim Repent for the king I wondered if you could give a word for those of us in the seats singing. What, it, what type of posture or mindset or how should we approach when a song begins? I see it as all something we're doing together. And again, that idea of lead worshiper, it's just we're, we're all worshiping the Lord together. Again, this is where you've got the pros and cons of the new form of worship because if there is somebody who is struggling with performance and and you feel that uh, in the congregation, it it can be quite a challenging thing to enter into worship. It would be easier is if there were no worship leader and we were all just singing an a cappella song mm-hmm. together. Yeah. It would be less distracting. Yeah. So in that environment, say a prayer for that person. Say a prayer for yourself <laughs> and your judgments <laughs> and you know, worship in spirit and truth in the best way that you can. All of this is focusing on musical worship here on a Sunday morning, and worship, of course, is much broader than <laughs> than that. It's it's all of it's all of life. It's given worth, ascribing worth to God. But but yeah, on, in that Sunday morning context, if you are blessed enough to be led in worship, either by a form where the leader is irrelevant, or by someone who is. Anointed, as they would say, <laughs> in 
charismatic circles, then be thankful and enter fully into that. It, that makes it that makes it a lot easier. Yeah, I had an experience once at a large gathering where on the jumbotron they did the close up of the guitar solo, right, just on the fingers mm-hmm. and. Um, and it was really helpful for me. And I laughed because I understood, you know, it wasn't appropriate, but I understood tension and the desire to be seen and the, which was a helpful lesson for me. And it helped me laugh and then, and then shut my eyes and do my best to <laughs> <laughs> join in. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's mm. right. I remember when we went to one of our very first uh, services at a charismatic church, and it was very close to heavy metal <laughs> music, and I just wanted to run, run away. And the pastor got up afterward, and he said, well... I guess acoustic month is over, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I I learned from that comment and many more interactions watching many leaders in charismatic churches that they, uh, the good ones, ha- give room for things to be less than ideal or to be different mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and give room for the fake give room for performance, give room for for people to grow through those things. Mm. And in so doing, give the Holy Spirit room to work. Because when you try, and this, this gets broader than just singing or music and anything in the kingdom, if you try and cut out the tares too early, then you, you cut out the wheat with it. <laughs> and so you've got to let them grow up together. Mm. And sometimes that means uh, making room for inauthentic spiritual experiences or emotionalism or whatever. Mm. You know, there's some line there where you say like, okay, this is you know, totally inappropriate or immoral or so right. whatever, where you've got to ask somebody to stop. But um, there's a lot of stuff that if you try and shut it all down and keep everything under perfect control that you've uh, you've just created a service that if the Holy Spirit didn't show up, you wouldn't even know the difference. Mm. It's creating space for God, right? I mean, That's isn't it. That... That's it. Yeah. And so sometimes when you do that, because people are people, you, you create room for people to drum up things that that aren't the Lord or to fabricate a, mm. an experience they're having with the Lord, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's okay. You just gave me something real helpful. I mean, I, you know, I get the idea of if you're leading people through worship with music and to not turn it into performance and make sure you've got the right clothes and you're doing it all, whatever, that weird line of concert versus worship. Um, but that also is a helpful word for us in the seats, pews, because we can get caught in that mindset of performance as well, right? They're not quite doing it right. I sure wish they, you know, 
wouldn't do this or this or that and become kind of consumeristic about, are you giving me the right goods um, as opposed to, am I invited into a space where I can physically or metaphorically fall on my knees and offer God what is God's, offer my heart. Okay. One other request, if I can, I, I know you did a workshop when we had the um, conference in Oregon. Do you have any of that material that we could post on the web for people? I do. And I will get that posted. Thank you, friend. So good. Well, there you have it. You can hear more of Scott's music at callporter.bandcamp.com. That's C-O-L-P-O-R-T-E-U-R dot bandcamp.com. As always, thanks for listening and have a great week.